Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Well, that was the uh, cool part of the program. And now there's me. My, uh, my notes on Planning Center said uh, this song was going to be swampy. So now I know what swampy is. I, some of you did. That was at the back. It's like Some of you had it going. Others of you, not so much. Thinking a little bit about ethics today. So let me ask you a question. What is the soup you swim in? What is the atmosphere in which you live and breathe? The Greeks had this real simple idea, and the idea was that our ethics, what we practice, what we commit to, what we believe is most important, the first things we put first, will create an ethos, will create an atmosphere. So these actions create an atmosphere in which we live. So all of us are creating our own air to breathe. We're creating an atmosphere in which we live. We're creating the context of our homes and of our families. And when sometimes, you know, you say, well, I wish, our, I wish we were more loving. Guess what? There is not a love fairy that comes and sprinkles dust over your family. Amen? Amen. Or over your children. We live in an ethos of love because we practice the ethics of being loving. And those are practices we commit to. They're they're not mysteries. There are things we do not say. There are attitudes we do not adopt. (laughs) There are things in which we do not engage because we do not choose to swim in that atmosphere. We've done it. And what's astonishing to me about this is how quickly you can identify someone's ethos. (laughs) Amen? I mean, it doesn't take very long of being around a person if you're like, that was very pleasant to swim in. Or, there were sharks in that water. (laughs) Amen? I mean, something intuitively in your heart and mind and spirit says, ouch! You know, you walk away from a conversation and you go, that's the first deep breath I've taken since I started talking to that person. I was on guard, it was combative, I don't know what. uh, And then other people, you're like, I just told that person, I don't even know them. I just told them my whole story. I just spilled my guts. They said, how are you? They looked at me like that look, and I said, well, let me tell you. (laughs) Amen? And it's vivid, and it's real, and it's powerful, and it's engaging. So today, when we think about first things first, we're thinking about our ethic. What are we committed to? Because it's not just homes and families. It's not just individuals. By the way, individuals. Studies say you have 3.4 blind spots in your life. Things you do that you don't know you do, but everyone else does. (laughs) That's a terrifying statistic, isn't it? I mean, not all of us, depending on what kind of ethos we swim in, are that open to say, hey, can you guys tell me what my blind spots are? (laughs) Because some of them will. They will. 
And what's true about individuals and homes and families, it's true about churches. Churches create an ethos. There is a soup in which we swim. There is a sense, a feeling that sometimes we walk into a space, you know, we're like, ooh, or we feel warm and at home. Come in. I love it when people come all the way to the front, don't you? <laughs> Listen, I'm just telling you right now, if they were nice people, they would have moved forward and left you a few seats at the back, but they're not. They sit in the back, make you come all the way forward. It's not nice. So we're thinking about what that would look like and what it would mean to be a people. And we're, we're worshiping in this series around this passage from Psalms 139, Search Me, O God, and Know My Heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is our collective prayer. This is a prayer of ethos. There's no doubt about that. Who do I want to hang out with? I want to hang out with people praying this prayer. I want to hang out with people. I know we're all imperfect. I know we're all broken. I know we all don't agree on everything. This is what we could agree on. My heart, my passion, my life is built around this prayer. Search me, O oh God. Know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. John Wesley, the 18th century theologian that founded Methodism, accidentally, but did, was an Anglican priest. As he began to to preach within the Anglican church about the fact that the church had turned its back on the poor, it needed to be far more engaged in caring for people in need. Uh, he was eventually excommunicated from the Anglican church. He was derisively called a Methodist because of his methodical way of asking his followers to read the Bible, to pray, and to do good works, to be engaged in the practices of the faith. So he was not unfamiliar with controversy and divisiveness, and, and so he would ask a question. If someone engaged him and they wanted to debate with him about the finer points of the theology, he would say, before we debate, before we talk, before we engage together, I have a question for you. Is your heart right with God as my heart is right with God? And if the person said yes, then he would say, fine, then we are free to argue the fine points of our theology because we already know that the cry of our heart is, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be, I, I want to be right in the eyes of God. I'm committed to that reality. It's not difficult to understand investing. Investing is a very simple principle. You are to buy low and to sell. See, you already know it. Everybody knows that in this room. It seems to be that the fine point is knowing what you might buy low that will end up being able to sell high. That might be more tricky in the proposition, isn't it? Because I don't think it's difficult to buy low. There's a lot of things that are cheap. It's just they're not sure they have any hope of ever gaining any momentum. And I would just say to you this morning, I think it's pretty easy right now to buy low on the church. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, I'll clarify. <laughs> These are not great days for the church of Jesus Christ around the world. Actually, I should probably amend that in North America and maybe Western Europe. There are places in the world where the church of Jesus Christ is actually thriving. <laughs> but in this country, it's struggling a great deal. So let me hit you with a few statistics just to kind of, you know, brighten your day. 
Now, I, I I'm going to give you the highlights here. So uh, some of you, and I appreciate this about you, I, I, do, I will say things in service and people go, hey, I didn't research what you said this morning. And sometimes I'm right and sometimes I'm not. But uh, I do understand all the nuances of the statistics I'm about to give you. I know there was an anomaly in 2009. I, I know all about that. But we're generally talking broad scope from 2000 to 2019. These numbers do not include COVID. These are pre-COVID numbers. All right, you ready? In the year 2000, about 49% of Americans in the United States attended church and were active Christians. About 49%, just a little less than half of the people in this country in the year 2000. By 2019, that number had dropped to 25%. It had been cut roughly in half. 25%. That's shocking. In less than two decades. If you go to the 2009 numbers, it's even more shocking. Because <laughs> there was a spike in attendance in 2009, probably because of the crash of the economy in 2008. I'm just saying. <laughs> you know, I'm getting poorer. I should go to church. And so... When you stop and you say, well, let's analyze that a little bit, okay? So we lost about 25% of what we call active Christians. Active Christians, meaning they believe in the cause of Jesus Christ and in the tenets of the faith. They attend church at least once a month, and they're actively engaged in mission and ministry. Active Christians. Well, it turns out, uh, of the 25% that stopped attending church, that we no longer consider active Christians, about 13%, about half, 12 and a half, 13%, became inactive Christians, meaning they still believe, they just no longer participate. Still believe, still read their Bible, still engage, but they don't attend church on any regular basis at all, if at all. About half of those. The other half have become either agnostic or atheist. They've just moved out of the picture of faith altogether or become somewhat indifferent, not sure they believe it anymore. In the middle of all of that, there's a couple of weird statistics. Uh, these are George Barna numbers, by the way, if you know who Barna is and his research. Here's one of the ones that's weird. Uh, about 49% of active Christians, about 100% of active Christians, 49% of the population uh, in the year 2000, were engaged in Bible reading at some level and Bible study at some level. Almost every person who considered themselves an active Christian were actively engaged in Bible study in one way or the other. Today, about 49% of Americans are still engaged in active Bible study. So although a significant number no longer attends church or consider themselves to be active Christians, they're still interested in the Word of God. That suggests a great openness. It, it's, it's, it means their hearts are still really open to what God is teaching. They just might not be buying so high on the church anymore. It's pretty easy to buy low on the church these days. Here's an even weirder statistic. Of the folks in the United States in 2019 who were asked this question, are you an active Christian, are you an inactive Christian, do you believe, do you not? 69% of all Americans said they pray on a daily basis. 69% of Americans said they pray on a daily basis. Now, I don't know exactly what they pray to. So you've got to know that that statistic probably involves some other things. But it suggests that people are not closed down to spirituality. They're not closed down to faith. It's not hard to buy low on the church right now. 
And you and I, we're challenged, we're invited into a space in which we begin to explore what it is about the kingdom of God that matters most. What is this ethos that we are called to create so that a hurting world, and the world is hurting, by the way. If you want to look at some statistics about mental illness in our culture and our world, these come from NAMI, the organization that tracks mental health in the United States. You would, you would read that one in five adults suffers from mental illness in the United States. One in every five adults suffers from some form of mental illness in the United States. That's a big number. I know some of you are writing down names. Saying <laughs> this explains a lot. One in 20 adults in the United States of America suffer severe mental illness. We're talking anxiety, depression. We're talking... Uh, situations in which it is difficult for them to function in a normal manner in the culture and in the world. Here's a staggering thought. 17% of kids age 6 to 17. What were you thinking about when you were 6 to 17? 17% of kids between the ages of 6, you understand what I'm saying? 6 years old and 17 years old suffer significant mental illness in this country. Now, it would be easy to draw an analogy and say, well, the reason we have so much mental illness is because people quit going to church. <laughs> However, that would not be fair because people within the church also have mental illness. It's kind of funny, but then again, it's not, is it? And so when you stop and you think about the statistics, here's the reality. Some of the things that are driving mental illness in this country are the same things that are driving people away from the church. It's not that they're not attending church, so they're getting mentally ill. <laughs> Here's what it is. Loss of personal relationship. We don't feel like people know us, nor do they care about us. We're not really connected to each other anymore as a culture. Number two, social media. Social media has made privacy a thing of the past. There's a lot of older folks in this room who are grateful we did not have cell phones and social media. Because we were weird. I mean, we were weird in ways that you people can't imagine. We lived in the 60s and the 70s. Weird was... Normal, so you had to be really weird to stand out. Private things aren't private anymore. You mess up in this culture and in this world, and, and things are known now that we're didn't opinions, perspectives, politics, you know, personal belief systems, they're out there. And they're not just out there, they're out there being critiqued, they're out there being torn down, they're out there being criticized, they're out there being made fun of. And in this culture, we've, we've battened down the hatches. We've, we've drawn ourselves into these smaller circles. We, we can talk to anybody in the world instantaneously, and yet meaningful conversations are almost non-existent. So where does that leave us in the scope of the world and of the call that you have? It turns out it's so easy right now to buy low on the church. It's so easy. The expectations of the church are so small. They're so, so insignificant. Sometimes I'll do a wedding or I'll do a funeral with a lot of people who don't go to church, and they're shocked 
They're just shocked that it's a normal conversation, that it's, that it's somehow, you know, kind or, or thoughtful or, or didn't say anything that was too out there. That should not be how it is. We, we shouldn't be shocked that people who are Christian are also loving and warm and kind and, and, and embrace us and listen to us. That shouldn't be weird. It shouldn't be that the expectation has become so small that it's not hard to impress people anymore because all you have to do is be nice, be a little nice, and people are shocked. Peter is writing a letter to a group of people who are going through a cultural revolution. They are under the pressure of a culture who has decided that Christianity is the cause of the problems in the empire of Rome. And these people will become the subject of open persecution. Many of them will be put to death. And Peter writes this first letter to say, I want to encourage you. I want to tell you what things to put first. I want to tell you what to think about at times like this. And by chapter 3, he's ready to really settle into the church and the ethos of the church and what's going on. This is what he writes. It's back here. That should be such a joyful thing. He is, that was so many pages already. First Peter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you be like-minded. Be sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear the threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it's better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Peter says, here's what it's like. Here's the ethos. Here are the ethics we practice to create an ethos in which the soup in which we swim is just this, the kingdom of God alive on earth. Here's what you do. Number one, he says, be like-minded. We ought to prioritize unity. Now, I want to tell you something. Prioritizing unity is not easy. Amen? So if you look traditionally at the church and at theology, you would find that in the dead center of theology is something that we call orthodoxy. Is that a word that means something to you guys? Orthodox. That means it is true to Scripture, it's true to experience, it's true to reason, and it's true to tradition. There it is. That's Wesley's thoughts about what orthodoxy represents. It's true to Scripture, it's true to tradition, but it's also true to experience, it's also true to reason. But within this centerpiece of Christianity called orthodoxy, not everybody in there agrees with everything. Can I get an Amen. 
These people still believe the Bible is the Word of God, and we gotta, that's where we go, right there, Word of God. We, we just still believe in it, we still practice it, we still teach it, we still seek it, we study it. Orthodoxy. Some people are over here, and how they interpret, and some over, but they're still inside this little narrow river down the middle called Orthodoxy, right in here. So what do we ask inside of Orthodoxy that creates unity in the life of the church? Is your heart right with God like my heart is right with God? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Can you pray this prayer with me? Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any wicked. If we pray this prayer together, then what unites us is far greater than what divides us. Paul says it so succinctly. And if on some things you don't agree with me, the Holy Spirit will help you. (laughs) Amen? But in here, and listen, unity is not easy. It's a choice. It's an ethic. We practice unity. I don't know if you have this, you know, when, when, when people come to your house at Thanksgiving, you practice unity. Amen? Okay, let's narrow it down if you're going to be stubborn. <laughs> unity in your home is based on how many children you have. Because if you have more than one, you find out they're not alike. And you will choose to practice unity. Or you will choose to swim in a different kind of ethos. Your soup may be more like oatmeal. But we choose it. We fight for it. We claim it. We discipline ourselves in it. We're choosing unity here. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Here's, here's the value. Here's how we love. Here's what we're doing. We're seeking unity. It shouldn't be that the Church of Jesus Christ has such a hard time getting together. It's just a really broad thing. Let's seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added. Let's get our heads right. We still believe in the redemptive power of God to transform lives in a world that is brokenhearted and hurting and fleeing the church because it's not making a difference in their life. Number two, not only are we to prioritize unity, we're to prioritize sympathy. The world hurts. Help them. Amen? I know it's a a simple thing to say, sympathy. How sympathetic are you? All right, it's time for honest conversation. I just got back from a conference. I've been at a conference for the last, I don't know, 48 days. It's not that long. It starts to feel like it, you know. And uh, this particular conference happens every January, and it's on a cruise ship. I know, people are like, oh, you were suffering for the Lord, you know. (laughs) But this is what you don't understand about that. Once you're on the ship, (laughs) you cannot get away. So you are on 24-hour, well, not quite 24 but a lot. And this was on a cruise lines that maybe you heard of. It's called Holland America. It could be renamed Very Old America. <laughs> if Carnival's kind of the young party boat, the other end would be <laughs> way over there. And I was shocked to walk around on that boat thinking, I just want these people to get out 
of my way. I appreciate the walker, I appreciate the scooter. But enough is enough. You know, at the end they ask you, is there a recommendation you can make to the cruise line to make your cruise more pleasant? Yes. Post signs, slower traffic, keep right. <laughs> Out of the way. Because sympathy's not philosophical, is it? I mean, how often are you like, got to get to the buffet? I haven't eaten for seven minutes. I got to get some food in my body. And that's a big exaggeration, but how often are we in traffic, are we at the grocery store, are we engaging with people in which sympathy is the last thing on our mind? Even in the context of our own homes and families, sympathy is the last thing on our mind. Sympathy, I am sympathetic to what you're going through. I see you. I have patience for you. I have a sympathetic attitude and heart towards who you are. Paul, Peter says, listen. In the face of the culture that is crashing around you, who has become completely your enemy in so many ways, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be like-minded. I want you to get together as the body of Christ, all seeking His will first. And then I want you to be sympathetic with each other. I want you to be sympathetic to people you meet every day and every walk of life, especially the ones that you don't want to be sympathetic with. Number three. I want you to prioritize loving each other. Church of Jesus Christ ought to be the most loving place on earth. And that's not hard to parse out. It's kind of like, you know, when you tell a joke and people don't get it and you have to explain it. It's not a good joke. If you're being loving but people don't get it and you have to explain it. People do know the difference between being loved and not. They do know. They feel it. There is an ethos that goes with being loving that is the air that is getting breathed in that moment. This ought to be... Why do people want to come in here and stay around? Because, listen, it's so intimidating to come to a church, any church. Why would they want to? Because people are unified in a way that is not occurring anywhere else on this planet. They are sympathetic in a way that doesn't occur anywhere else. They are loving in a way that doesn't occur anywhere else. And why are they these things? Because as Christ loved us, we also ought to love one another. Because he set the example. You go be the body of Jesus Christ, he says. Number four, prioritize compassion. He says, you ought to also be compassionate. Put yourself in the shoes of someone else. I know, tick, tick, you know that's kind of technically empathy. <laughs> Have compassion. We live in a world that blames and assesses. I don't know. The world's supposed to be getting less bigotry. We're supposed to be practicing less bigotry in the world, but I don't think we are, are we? I mean, if I threw out names of groups of people in the country, you could shout back the cultural understanding of who they are. I mean, we could go down 20 things because that, we take shortcuts now. There's too much information coming at us, so we just take whole groups of people and we lump them into categories. Oh, those people are this, and those people are that. And, you know, I, I mean, I'll just throw out two, you know, very pejorative words that divide us. Democrats and Republicans. Whoa. Amen? We don't even care who they are. We already know what they are. Except we don't. It's called bigotry. It's a very convenient thing that we do. <laughs> we, I could give you 20 of those things. I could give you 50. But that's not who we are. 
That doesn't work in here. In here, we practice compassion. We look at individual people, and we are concerned with. You know, the number one distinguishing factor of why a person believes what they believe, why they vote the way they vote, why they think the way they think, number one, it's not how they were raised. It's not what their parents believed. Number one, it's not church. It's not faith or the lack thereof. It is experience. This is what happened to me, and this is why I believe what I believe. We don't run over that. Not as followers of Jesus Christ. We listen. We listen. doesn't mean that people's experience leads to outcomes that are the appropriate ones or the healthy ones, but we listen to the experience and we come beside them in compassion. And what do we do? We create a safe, loving, wonderful place in which the Holy Spirit can change them into the very being of Christ. I'm not the agent of change. You're not the agent of change. The Holy Spirit is the agent of change. And if the Holy Spirit is alive and well, still in the business of transforming people's lives. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Change me. We practice and prioritize humility. Humility. Here's my definition of humility. I don't know very much. I believe a lot of things. I believe them passionately, but I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it would be nice to die and come back and then go, hey, I was dead, so let me tell you what's on the other side, because now I know, because I went there and I came back and I can explain to you everything. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? I mean, people would think you were crazy, but... And until we have that experience, we believe... We trust the Word of God, but we don't know that we know. We practice humility. Here's where I'm coming from. Here's what I think. I believe it with all my heart. I believe it passionately. Are you going to change my mind? No, probably not. But my heart is in a place of humility where I listen. I listen well. You matter. Your story matters. Your experience matters. There's humility. Finally, number six, he says this that we prioritize blessing and being blessed. He talks about this truth. On the contrary, we pay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. If you want to have long life and see good days, practice this. Don't just love the people who love you. Love the people who misuse you. Love the people who are your enemy. Create an ethos on earth that's different. It doesn't take any special gift to just like people who are like you. It takes a special gift. It takes the power of God. It takes the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the presence of Jesus Christ to love people who don't like you, who mistreat you, who say bad things. <laughs> the disciples were all about, hey, let's love the people that love us. And Jesus said, no, uh-uh, that's not how this works. That is a common practice among the people, but you are kingdom people. You have your citizenship in another place. And the ethic and the ethos of that place is loving in a way that is unlike anything else on earth. This is what you're called to. This is who it is. Why can we buy low on the church? Because we've forgotten our mission. We've forgotten our purpose. We are the very presence of Christ in the world. I think if Jesus showed up, people would like him. I mean, not all people. It's easy to buy low. We're invited to practice these ethics 
so that we might create an ethos. And that ethos is the very visible presence of the kingdom of God alive on earth. That's our call. We're not a church on the corner that's called to be this or that, you know, do this, do that. We do a lot of things in the name of this cause, of being the body of Christ on earth. We do it in the name of this cause, to see a hurting world come to know the spiritual solution at the core of life, a changed heart, surrendered to God, serving a greater purpose than ourselves. And it's got to start in here. It starts in here with us serving a greater purpose than ourselves and our story and our lives and perpetuating our own existence. So here's what I'm inviting you to do. We're in this legacy project. You know it's coming. February 26th is our Obedience Sunday. We're going to be pledging. We've got to raise $4 million. We've got to do this thing. We've got to get it done. We haven't done this in 30 This is my 35th year as the pastor here. We've raised a little money along the way. This is more. And I have come to understand I am not a fundraiser, so (laughs) here's what I do know. None of us can do great things, but all of us can do small things with great love, and together we can do something wonderful. I'll be bluntly honest with you. I have prayed more days that this project would fall through than I have prayed that it would come through. It's been 15 years, 15 years of battling with L.A. County. They're still mad, but they can't stop us now. (laughs) We have permits in hand. They can't, they're like down there going, if they mess up, if they step out of line one time. So I want to invite you to do something with me. I want you to think about these words, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I'm going to give you a little reminder when you leave today. It's a little magnet. I want it to go on your refrigerator or somewhere prominent. It's got a little, you know, QR code so you can get to the page without, if you can name it, you know, blah, 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 legacy. It has a quote from Mother Teresa. None of us can do great things. All of us do small things with great love. And this is what I'm asking you to do. We're about a month away from that obedience Sunday. I want you to take this and I want you to pray. I want you to start now. So I thought it would be really clever, and I would say, you know what, I want you to pray. I want you to pray this prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And well, it would be so cool because, you know, maybe it's like Matthew 9, 10, and then at 9, 10 in the morning, 9, 10 in the evening, you can pray. But it's not 9, 10, and it's not 8, 10, and it's not 7, 10. It's 6, 10. <laughs> now, some of you have already been up two hours by then. Others of you haven't seen 6, 10 in months and months and months, or ever. So as a reminder, maybe 6.10, maybe you pray twice at 6.10 in the evening. Maybe you pray at 8.10 when you wake up. I'm going to ask you to take this. I'm going to ask you to put it in a prominent place. I'm going to ask you to pray about this project. Nothing great happens in the kingdom of God without prayer. So the challenge I'm putting out there for you is this. Be a part of the prayer team that is going to pray couple times a day, you can pray more, and let's pray and seek. It's easy to buy low. Let me say something to you. Some things are worth investing in. It's worth investing in a church that practices humility and love and compassion and unity. 
It's worth investing in a church that still believes in changed lives. It's, it's worth investing in a church that longs to see people come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, to celebrate a baptism at the front of a church, to pray, to have people to disciple them in the Word and in growing in their faith. It is worth investing in to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, and that's why we're here. And we don't want to do that for the next five minutes. We want to do it for the next 50 years or 100 years. We're standing on the shoulders of people who have left us a legacy, and we're going to leave a legacy. And the heart of that legacy is this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me, and lead us all in the way that is everlasting. That's the ethos of this congregation. That's what I want us to swim in. That's what I want people to swim in when they walk in the door. And I'm asking and inviting you to be a part of that. God, would you help us? As we now commit ourselves in these days, a lot of stuff has gone on. There's been a lot of logistics and meetings and drawings and plans and design people and all of that stuff that has to be a part of these plans. But now we come to a moment in which we set that at your feet and we just invite you into this process. Speak. Lead, have your will, teach us, grow us, challenge us. Your will done on earth as it is in heaven. We're not asking for more, but we're certainly not asking for less than exactly that. So lead us, guide us. May we be the kingdom of God, visible, alive on earth, as we seek above all else to be pleasing to you, to see your will on earth as it is in heaven. May that be true of us. We pray it in Jesus' name, and everybody says together, Amen. Amen. God bless. Let's stand and respond to the word. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.